So we're going through the book of Philippians, and tonight we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at two verses, 14 and 15. Uh, sometimes we'll look at a longer passage, but we'll just look at those two. I, uh, I've been doing quite a bit of coaching of late with pastors on their preaching and uh, doing some stuff on the computer where I talk and there's a camera and there's groups sitting, listening, and some of it's, I, I watch, listen to their sermon on YouTube and then send them stuff in the mail. And so after tonight, you're, you're going to think, uh, probably I should listen to my own stuff. <laughs> uh, I, uh, we're, we're videoing the, my leadership class, the one I'm doing for the ladies. And because of the seminar, we're going to give the, to pastors the video lesson of it. And I was watching one of them to see how it turned out. And I hadn't watched myself preach for years and years. And uh, I just about retired right there. I was like, wow, you guys need some award for putting up with that. And uh, so, but uh, when I do coach these guys, I tell them to rec- have the record their sermons and listen to it. And every one of them, I mean, to a person, to a guy, they will, they do not like listening to their own sermons. They just make them, uh, they have to go get counseling afterwards. Their self-worth is just plummeted and they don't realize what they sounded like until they listen to themselves. I did, uh, there was a guy in the church years ago, and about every other word was a swear word. And he didn't really realize he, he talked like that. And so I just went with him one day to, to, to his job. He, had a, he was self-employed, and I put a, that was before the days of cell phones, I had a little recorder I used to dictate notes with, and I put it in my pocket and turned it on. And then I, I said, hey, how about coming and seeing me next week? When he did, I turned it on and set it on my desk. And we listened to about, oh, 30 minutes. And after it was done, he literally, I am not exaggerating, he literally started crying. Uh, He he was so uh, embarrassed and ashamed of what he sounded like as he listened to himself with that recorder. Uh, I tried to tell him several times, but it didn't uh, didn't sink in. And uh, it's just surprising how we don't hear ourselves very well. We hear other people quite well, but we don't really realize what we're saying, and sometimes when we listen to recording of what we um, say and how we talk uh, with preachers, you know, it's an occupation thing, so we do it, but often just in normal conversations, we don't realize what we say. So I'm going to talk tonight about uh, the, probably the worst habit in our culture in the area of talking, communicating, and so it's a bad one. But we don't see it as being bad because our culture has made it so normal that it's taken what you might call the the bad out of it because everybody does it. And it's an automatic assumption if everybody does it, it must not be that bad. But we'll look at it from God's perspective and see if it isn't. So I'll read the passage, Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things, all things, notice the word all, That's not some, that's not a few, that's not many, that's all, A-L-L, all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked seat. Are you doing the thing or am I? They're doing it. Okay. Uh, Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Number one in your notes, Philippians 2, 14 through 15 is a command. It's a command. 
given to us in the Word of God, but most believers read it as a good suggestion. So, if I wanted to make a point in a conversation, you and I are fishing, and we're fishing for eight hours in a boat, and I want to get you to stop doing something. Uh, And it's important that you get it. I would say it in a certain tone of voice that would communicate, this is important. I might elevate my voice. uh, I might use certain words. I might even yell in order for the message to come across. This is not just normal stuff. This is important that you get this. So one of the things that God did when he gave us the Bible is he had it written, the New Testament, in what's called Koine Greek, a particular language. It's a dead language now. It's not spoken, though there is a Greek language. It's not Koine Greek. The New Testament is written in it. One of the things about Koine Greek, it is incredibly expressive in written form. Uh, It's probably the most expressive language ever uh, invented, if I can use that term, uh, in writing. In other words, you can communicate in writing uh, information that normally is only communicated through facial expression, body language, tone of voice. And so we will attempt to do it when we write with explanation points and sometimes even now with texting with capital letters. But the Koine Greek, it's easy to communicate uh, emphasis by doing it. So this particular uh, verse, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so it's, uh, it's got a negative in there. Now, in Greek lang- uh, uh, English language, a double negative is considered to be bad grammar. So I do a blog every day, and one of the things that I get feedback on from people is that my grammar is terrible. Uh, but, you know, with a blog, who cares? Uh, it's just sort of like talking. Uh, plus, I do it on my iPad and sometimes late at night, and so it's a little tricky with the uh, fingers to get the right words, but I misspell words fairly regularly and use bad grammar, and uh, it's gotten to be sort of my style now. <laughs> so it does sense messing with your style, huh? Um, so in the Greek language, when you use a double negative, it's like saying, this is important. This is important. Also in the Koine Greek, word order is not necessary for part of speech. Every word has a prefix, a suffix, or both telling you whether it's the subject, the object, the, the adjective, the, the pro, you know, whatever part of speech it is, you can tell, and you can put the words in any order. And you can still make sense because every part of speech has, it basically tells you with the prefix or suffix what it is. And so they would put words in order based on emphasis. And so the first word is the emphasis in the sentence. So anybody guess what the first word is in this verse? Huh? Grumbling. With a double negative after it. So, big deal. It's big deal. Very, very important. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Absolutely. Why? So when we read it, it doesn't appear to be that big a deal. Why? English. Huh? English. English and everybody does it. Everybody grumbles. That's just our culture. That's what we do. So if I walk up to you and say, hey, how are you doing? It's an invitation. 
Tell me how bad things are going. Now, we can communicate information. I can tell you how I'm feeling. I can tell you that it's raining. We can give information that's sort of on the negative side without it being called grumbling. But you know the difference. You can tell it simply on the basis of how we say it, uh, what it is that we're saying. And so grumbling is a... That's what we do. That's what regular communication is normally about, is fussing, whining, complaining about our bad situation, whether it's at work, with our health, our neighbor's dog, or whatever it is. Number two, God is gracious, patient, forgives us of our sins, even when committed over and over again. That is so cool. I've committed some, some sins so many times, uh, I would be embarrassed to keep track. And, and it's not that I want to do it, I just, ugh. And so I come to God and say, Lord, here I am again. And I, I, I don't want to do it, but I just have this flesh that's, you know, I just keep coming back. And the cool thing is that God doesn't get tired, and he doesn't say that I've hit the quota, that there's a limit. Once you hit seven times, that's all you're going to get forgiven for. Uh, if he tells Peter to do it seven times seven, he'll certainly forgive me that many times. Except, except when there is no remorse, no repentance, and a complacency about the value of it. So if God gives me a command and I don't really, eh, no big deal, who cares? Everybody's doing it. I don't think it's that important. Then all of a sudden, uh, there'll be no forgiveness for it. Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning willfully, willfully, that means, eh, who cares? After receiving the knowledge of the truth, now, bad news, you're listening to this sermon. You're getting some knowledge of the truth. So if you want to grumble without, uh, you know, you better leave right now, because I'm going to give you some information that's going to going to make it so that uh, you can no longer use ignorance as your excuse. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know what that means? It means there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's fairly complicated, isn't it? That means you're cooked. There's no forgiveness for sins that we willfully do with complacency after recognizing or knowing and seeing that it is important. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and of the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. You think, whoa, that sounds like triple murder or something. That's pretty serious stuff. A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, we don't live under the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant? Do you know what that means? That means where we take God's forgiveness for granted. I uh, think it's, eh, I can sin. I'm forgiven. I'm under grace. We trample underfoot the Son of God, have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and had insulted the Spirit of grace. Insult the Spirit of grace. You ever hear anybody say, I don't have to be good, I'm under grace, I'm saved by grace. 
insult the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay and again that the lord will judge his people it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god that'll keep you up a couple hours after you go to sleep read that one half a dozen times a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god now that's for me and you his children in other words, God is not going to leave us where we are. But generally, most of the things that we would say, that's sin, that's sin, that's bad, that's not good, we confess it and, ah, we, there's a remorse, a regret, a guilt about doing it. And then there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, it's erased, it's gone, it's done. But when we are casual and complacent, and put low value on what God puts high value on, and then that verse, those verses come to play in our life. Number three, we don't realize that when we grumble against our neighbor, our mother-in-law, or our boss, we're grumbling against God. And we may not think that's bad, but God does. God is God. He is sovereign. He causes all things, either directly or by permission. And so He orchestrates our life for our good, for our growth, for our character development. And so when we grumble about events and circumstances, we're not grumbling against our neighbor, our boss, uh, our government. We're grumbling against God. So a series of verses in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 15. Now this is like a week after they leave Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. I mean, can you imagine what that's like walking on dry ground with water probably higher than the roof on both sides? You're walking through this wall of water after having experienced the ten plagues of Egypt and the Egyptians experienced, but you didn't. Water turned into blood, frogs everywhere, gnats everywhere, hail, black, blackness, all that go through those things successfully day after day. They don't get affected by it, just the Egyptians. And then they walk through the, the Red Sea with these. And then a week later, they're whining and fussing. Then Moses uh, led Israel, Exodus 15, 22, led Israel from the Red Sea. And they went out into the wilderness of Sur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for there they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled. The people grumbled. Three days after experiencing an amazing miracle, they fuss and whine. Exodus 16, one chapter later, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that means there wasn't anybody that was being good. The whole congregation the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole congregation with hunger. Um, the next verse, chapter, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will bring bread from heaven for you, the people shall go out, gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether, they, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So God feeds them with the food of angels, manna. You know what manna means? 
What's this? Yeah, they went out and, what's this? That's manna. That's what the word means. And so even the name of what God provided them was a bit of a grumbling. It's like, you got to be kidding me. It looks like cornflakes. Chapter, uh, uh, same chapter, verses 8 and 9, Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat. Now, the first thing they did with the manna was, ah, manna, manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner, manna for snacks. Oh, what's with this manna? Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, bread to full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. <clears throat> so he blows in a bunch of quail, like three feet deep of quail. Exodus 17, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why have you brought us out from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? Numbers 14, 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Numbers 14, 27, how long shall I bear with this evil? This is God speaking. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? Evil. So our opinion of grumbling is it's, eh, God's opinion is it's evil. Who grumble, who are grumbling against me. I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Chapter 14, verse 29, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. So they left Egypt, headed for the promised land, and they didn't, any of them make it. They all died in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. And uh, the crowning thing was they didn't go into the promised land, but it was basically their grumbling. All along the way, they grumbled because they didn't have water. They grumbled because they didn't have uh, bread. They grumbled because they didn't have meat. They continually grumbled, and they and eventually didn't end up <coughs> going into the promised land because of that. So number four, the command not to grumble is not just about the big, bad, awful things, but about everything. <clears throat> I used to say, you know, you know, somebody said something to me once. You say you know about every 20 seconds in your sermon. No. You know? So I listened. Man, it was more like every 15 seconds. And so I made a goal to cut it out of my preaching. I should listen to see it. Do I say it anymore? You know? <laughs> Why did I start doing that? Because other people did, and I just picked it up from them and acquired a habit, and pretty soon when it's a habit, you don't even realize you're doing it. So grumbling is that way. It's just a habit. We pick it up when we're little. Uh, we say to our mom, Mom, I don't like mush every morning or whatever it is you grumbled about. And it moves to something and something. And it's just a way of talking. It's just a way of life. It's what we do. Now, communicating about life is fine, but it easily shifts into a higher gear. 
where it becomes whining and complaining and fussing and compl- uh, rather than simply communicating about what's going on. Number five, grumbling is a serious act of dishonoring our God who is mighty, all-wise, all-knowing, infinitely powerful, holy, and has given us the amazing gift of salvation. So if someone gives you a $100,000 pickup, four-wheel drive, and it's got every bell and whistle on it, somebody told me there was pickups worth 100000 I said, no, you've got to be kidding me. And so they, they, they Googled it right there in front of me, and I looked, and I said, you, uh, uh, who in their right mind would pay $100,000 for a pickup? Evidently, somebody does, or they wouldn't have them for sale. So one of you buys me one, gives it to me on my birthday, and I say, oh, wow, you are wonderful. You are so nice. And I get in, and, and I turn it on, and I say, you know, it's only a quarter full of diesel. <laughs> Would that be uh, There'd be some character problems there, don't you think? So I have been given eternal life forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven. I get a glorified body. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. God has given me that amazing gift. And then I walk out and say, ah, it's raining again. Man, i got to move to Arizona. Or whatever. See, we forget that God is the one who is sovereign. He is in charge. And He has given us a $100,000 pickup, as it were. In fact, it's priceless, our eternal life. So in light of that, there should be nothing that is an an issue or a problem. And so when we complain to God, we don't realize we're complaining to Him, but when we grumble about anything in life after He has given us that amazing gift, it's just lacking in appreciation, it's lacking in character, it's lacking in awareness, Uh, and it's incredibly dishonoring to God. It's incredibly dishonoring to God that's why it's worded so strongly is because this is a big deal to God because of what He has done for us and the gift that He's given to us. <clears throat> Let me read it to you again. Philippians two fourteen and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things, everything, without exception, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Number six, grumbling is such a serious sin with God that when we don't grumble, when we don't grumble at all, if we can get free of that totally, uh, we will be considered by Him to be perfect. I mean, we have arrived. So if you get to the point of thinking, man, I, I did, I'm pretty sure. I, I might have slipped, but I'm pretty sure I went through the day and didn't complain about anything. You now can say, I am perfect. I have arrived. <laughs> I didn't say it. God did. If you can become a person that grumbles about nothing, in his opinion, you're blameless, you're perfect, you're above reproach, and you're called a child of God. He becomes incredibly proud of you and the way you live your life simply on the basis of not grumbling about anything. Um, 
I think I can pull that one off someday. I mean, that's something that's measurable. I should be able to get there. Number seven, grumbling makes us useless as a witness for Jesus. So you, you know this, but you may have forgotten it. Brandon will stand up and give you a 10-minute message and make you feel like dirt if you don't witness. That's your job. You know, we've been called to witness. But there's a catch. You have to have some level of boldness. You have to have some level of wisdom. You have to have some opportunities, all of which fall under the category of God. And he can take away every opportunity there is under the sun to witness. He can take away every shred of boldness. He can make you stupid as a fence post. So you can't, uh, you just, uh, you just, how effective a witness is that? So Paul says we earn the right from God to be a witness. We prove ourselves worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. Then when we prove ourselves worthy of the gospel, then he opens up doors, divine appointments come flooding into our life, our boldness goes up, our wisdom goes up, and we're like Billy Graham the second. And we didn't even have to take Brandon's class. So can God do that? Make you Billy Graham the second or make you dumber in a fence post? Sure he can. Paul said... Live your life worthy of the gospel because if you don't, then God is not going to let you embarrass him by identifying with him and attempt to share the gospel with somebody. Philippians 2, 14 through 15, again, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's where we live today in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights. Among whom you appear as lights. Everybody's going to look at you and they're going to know there's something different about you, something special about you, and they're going to ask you what it is. And God's going to give you the wisdom to say just the right thing at the right time because you prove yourself worthy of the gospel by not doing what everybody else does and fussing and whining and complaining about every little problem that comes into your life. So I'm going to let me, let me give you a couple of easy steps. So this is like easier than, if you're a smoker, this would be easier than quitting smoking. If you cuss and you want to quit cussing, this would be easier, way easier than that, okay? So it's not a hard thing to do, but you've got to follow certain steps. Number eight, first step, this, overcome this bad habit, is memorize Philippians 2, 14 and 15. It's amazing how powerful the memorized Word of God is to overcome sin. Just memorize that verse and then repeat it half a dozen to a dozen times a day. Just go over it as you meditate on it, think about it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then go on from there. Occasionally, someone will walk up to me and say, I was eating lunch with somebody the other day, and they said it. They said, I can't memorize. I said, uh, I can't. Uh, does that mean you won't? Or you have some kind of learning disability? No, there's something in my brain. I just can't. 
And so I said what I always say at those situations. I said, what's your name? Oh, you can. Look at there. You remembered your name. So they say that like they were born with some kind of circuit missing in their brain. There's just something gone wrong in their thinking. They can't memorize. It's not possible. They say it just like that. Some people can, but my brain is just such a kind of brain that I can't memorize. So you can't. You really can. You just mean that you don't want to make the effort to exercise your brain to the point where it becomes capable of doing that. Because anybody can. Anybody can. So you can memorize. So Philippians 2, 14 through 15, what would be cool next week is if I could call on anybody and you, ah, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Adam Montgomery, and he'll just bust it right out. So I wouldn't do that, so don't stay home next week, okay? <laughs> but we're just pretending that you could get it down bet between now and next week, two verses, piece of cake. That would do a, go a long ways to changing everything. Psalms 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man, and also uh, Jim McCain, uh, keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart. Do you know what that means? I memorized it. Why? That I may not sin against you. Any sin you want to quit, memorize verses that pertain to that and meditate on it, and you about got her licked right there. So memorize Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Number nine, a good second step is to get some help from others. That's an accountability group. That's just where you give a report. This is what I did. This is how I'm doing. This is what I'm working on. There's something really powerful about sharing what you're aiming for, what you're trying to quit, and telling them what you're doing, and then giving a report on it. And so, uh, you know, if anybody wants in an accountability group with me, I'm starting three new ones. And I do just guys. Ladies, you have to find someone else to do the ladies' groups. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We need each other. We can't conquer sin habits without help from the body of Christ. The biggest problem we have is our pride. We think we can do it on our own by ourselves. God did not create us capable. He did not create us capable even a little bit of growing without help from the body. We get grace from God through people. We get encouragement from God through people. Everything that God wants to give me, he gives me through other people. And so the minute I think I can do it without others, I am dead. I will not grow. I will not conquer even the smallest sin. Number 10, next memorize Philippians 4.4. 4. We're going to move on to the same thing from the positive side. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And that's an easy one. So even for those of you who can't memorize, you can get this one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. See, some of you got it all down right now. So that means you rejoice when? In the Lord always. always. You grumble about nothing. You rejoice about everything. Those are great verses that go together in the same book. Number 11, next memorize Psalms 511. And you're thinking right now, how many verses are you going to give me? That's the last one, it's just three. Psalms 511, let all who take refuge in you be glad. 
Let them ever sing for joy. May you shelter them that those who love your name may exalt in you. That's a great verse. You know what it's about? It's about worshiping God. So the only way you can get rid of a bad habit is to replace it with a good one. The only way you can get, wrong, a bad, get rid of a wrong way of thinking is to replace it with the right way of thinking. And so do all things without grumbling or disputing, and you pull that one off by rejoicing always. And then you learn to worship God, to worship Him. And that worship includes... Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing. Sing for joy, for joy. I sing all the time. I sing kind of nonsense songs, but I like them. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me more than Brandon. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to see why, because I'm much better looking. And... Uh, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. How hard is that? Make the tune anything you want, the words are pretty easy. I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. So if you want to memorize long, complicated songs, uh, go ahead. I just like short, easy ones, ones that I make up. And, uh, but singing, that wasn't invented by the Beatles. God invented it. God invented it. So here's a law of life. This is as true as gravity. Number 12, every private discipline is limited by our corporate expression of that discipline. You know, there's a lot of people who've been Christian for 40 years have never, ever discovered that law. Every private discipline is limited by our corporate expression of that discipline. So, I'll give you an example. Prayer. I pray by myself. I will tonight. I have an iPad with a prayer app in it, and your names are all in along with your pictures. My goal is to pray through every person in the church every week. It takes me about an hour a day. I do that all by myself, sitting in my recliner, sometimes with a bowl of popcorn next to my chair, eating it slowly, and a can of, of uh, what's that stuff I drink now? No, it's the bubbly water that... What's that stuff we bring to football? Yeah, I don't know, something that tastes good but no calories. And so Patty buys it for me now, and I set it on that side, the popcorn on that side, and I go through my iPad, and I pray for you, and I write things down about you, and all by myself. That's called private prayer. Did you know that my private prayer will totally, absolutely not get off the ground? I will fall asleep. I won't be able to concentrate It'll be just flat dead if I ignore corporate prayer. The corporate expression of the discipline, if neglected, left out of your life, will guarantee that the private expression of it will absolutely go no place. And ah, I like doing things by myself. That's the way we are. Because we don't like accountability. We don't, I mean, that's just, but I'm going to do a, a lesson on Sunday at 10.15 on the Trinity, my doctrines class. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Do you know how long the Trinity has existed? Forever, without beginning. Father, Son, God, uh, Holy Spirit, 
the Trinity, forever. Three distinct personalities, so much one, they're like one, but they're three in one. That's what you call community. Did you know the expression, God is love? would be impossible to say if there wasn't an object to love, and that was said about him before there was an atom, before there was an angel, before there was a particle of dust. Everything is created but the, the Godhead, and at some point nothing existed but, except the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when that was true, God was love because their relationship is so unified and so intimate and so loving and we're created in his image and in his likeness. And he made the church as a f- type or a picture of the Trinity, as it were. But we say, I don't need you. I don't like you. I can do it without you. Thank you very much. And so we struggle continually. So God basically said this. You want to pray privately, you should. But if you don't do it corporately, it isn't going to get off the ground. It isn't going to get off the ground. And so I say that all the time to encourage people to pray corporately because you might say, I'm going to pray by myself. Give it a shot. But if you ignore corporate prayer, it isn't going to, get all, it isn't going to work. Worship is the same way. We ought to worship all the time. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Thank God, thank God, thank God, thank God. But if you worship corporately, poorly, you're going to find yourself having a tough time not being a whiner because the same character that causes you to worship well corporately is what will then drive your private worship of rejoicing always. So the worst worshipers are men because they're so prideful they don't want anybody to hear them. And so they... That's their worship. You know how I sing? As loud as I can. I sing as loud as I can. That's why sometimes you'll see the worship team go like this, because I sit up here, and I'm off key a little bit, and it messes them all up. But I don't care. Just making them work, you know? We pay them big bucks, so we're going to make sure they earn it. <clears throat> So you worship with all your might, with all your heart, with everything that's in you. And uh, you direct your words to God. And you absolutely never, ever, ever, ever whine because the songs, you don't know them. I mean, that's like double insult. You're gathered together to worship and you're going to fuss because... The songs are too slow or too long or too fast or too old or too new or whatever. It's all about God, not about me. So you worship well in attitude. You worship well in effort. You worship well in focus corporately because if you don't, private worship will suffer terribly. So right now, when we worship this morning, we think, I'm just going to sing some song. We don't understand how valuable that is to our walk and relationship with God and to the growth of our character. So when you worship corporately, worship well, and it'll affect every day, all day long. You gather here and have a bad attitude, and that's the way it's going to be all week long. Your private discipline of worship rises and falls in your corporate discipline of worship. Your private prayer life rises and falls in your corporate prayer life. Even your Bible. 
You read your Bible. The corporate expression of that is the preaching. And you're haphazard about attending church and, uh, and the preaching, it, it doesn't, and maybe you, uh, you ought to tell more jokes. Maybe you ought to tell less jokes. Maybe you ought to go 20 minutes instead of 40. Maybe you ought to go 10 minutes instead of 20. You know what most families that go to church have for dinner? Roast pastor. That's kind of a habit. That's a bad habit. Then you're going to read the Bible that week, and you're going to say, I, I just don't get anything out of my Bible reading. Your private disciplines rise and fall on your corporate disciplines. So if you don't get anything else out of the sermon tonight, get that one. Uh, that's just the way God made it, because he's Trinity. We're the body of Christ. We don't function by ourselves on our own. We can't. We're created in his image and in his likeness. That's the way it is. <clears throat> Worship God corporately with all your heart, soul, mind, and might. Psalms 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. 13. Print these verses out and read them a couple times every week for six months on your notes. There they are. Um, You've got a Bible program and a printer. Print those out. Read them. Once a day, a couple times a week, those verses will powerfully influence your thinking about worship. And that's only 10% of the verses in just Psalms. So it's a great commandment repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Corporate worship, do it well. Do it with all your heart, with all your might, with all your mind. And if you don't, it influences your behavior all week long. So it's just incredibly important. So this is something that slides under the radar. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to God. And a lot of Christians are not getting blessed much because they haven't figured this one out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that we would be those who understand what it means to honor you, to exalt you, to worship you, to praise you, to live life positively, rejoicing always and grumbling about nothing. I pray that that would be our goal as we live our life. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.